Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. In our last episode, Joshua had just sent out spies to check out the land on the other side of the Jordan, starting with the heavily fortified city of Jericho. Now, everyone who's ever watched a crime show knows that the best informants are hanging out near the bottom of the food chain, where they hear and see more everything than the average citizen. The spies hook up with Rahab, she of the oldest profession who's been hanging out near the city gates, where she's heard that everyone in the whole region, not to mention just Jericho, has heard how a god named Yahweh dried up the water of the sea when Israel escaped from Egypt, Egypt the most feared nation in the region. Everyone's also heard how even more recently the feared kings of the south, Sihon and Og, have been totally wiped out by Israel, who are known to be Yahweh's people. It's clear to her and to her people that this Yahweh or rather that I am the real deal. God not just of a particular specialty or neighborhood, but of heaven and earth themselves. And furthermore, everybody knows I've already given this land to Israel. Uh, Joshua 2 narrates the spies' encounter with Rahab. Uh, verses 8 through 11 details her intel. I love this woman. She's a real spitfire, that Rahab, and an important lesson sticking up out of our story. She is not a descendant of Ike, Jake, or his boys. She is outside my special covenant with Israel. She is definitely breaking my law on a regular basis, though the law is for Israel at this point and she's not part of them, but we'll talk about that dynamic another time. In spite of these things, she is not only playing a key role that leads to victory, she is going to be remembered for her faith in me for millennia. Speaking of which, she's got more faith in me than did the entire last generation of Israelites, the ones who actually walked through that sea on that dry land. They didn't think I could give them the promised land. This woman does. I say it again, I love this gal. Wait a minute. How can I love her? How can she be an important lesson for anybody? I mean, with her sordid lifestyle and all. Well, friend, you'll note I'm not saying that I'm a fan of her sexual exploits. What I am saying, though, is that she isn't letting herself be defined by her sin and is, in fact, courageously stepping out of the box it would like to keep her in. She knows I am on the move and boldly believes in me. She goes so far as to commit herself and her family into my safekeeping. She doesn't wait to do so until she's straightened up and gotten her act together. There's no time for that. Two of my sons are right there, right now, and she casts her lot with us. The train is in the station and she's hopping on board, ready to carpe the diem and the rest of her life to follow. 
which makes Rahab a double archetype. First of all, she's an early prequel to the time when direct relationship with yours truly is going to be opened to all humankind on the basis of the Abra plan, the part wherein I promise that all peoples on earth will be blessed through Abram and the great nation we make out of his seed. Rahab is clearly outside the exclusive law-based contract I have going with Israel in her time, but she foreshadows a greater cast of the net in fulfillment of that early clause of promise. Second, she's the perfect example of what I can do in and with someone with a willing heart. Her station doesn't matter. Even her sin doesn't matter at this point. She's throwing in with me right where she is in her life, and you can too. There's no need to wait until you've got all your ducks in a row and all the bad behaviors worked out of your life. We both know that'll never happen. Or at least, not without my help. Rahab didn't say, I'm too sinful to be of service to God. She just served me. You can too. More on that later. Right now, in addition to providing her report of my current tough God reputation amongst the peoples, Rahab also provides a hiding place for Joshua's spies, even sending the Jericho Bureau of Investigation on a wild Jews chase while my boys are hidden in piles of flax stalks on her roof. Um, this wily woman is obviously pragmatic and let one of her clients pay by barter with grain. When the coast is clear, Rahab tells the spies to go hide in the hills for a few days until the JBI calls off their search, then lets the spies down from her outer wall window with the rope but not until after working out a deal with them for the safety of her and her family. She's not to breathe a word of their encounter to anyone, of course, which makes perfect sense, but she's also to tie a red rope to the windowsill to mark her home, where all her next of kin are to gather when the attack comes. Whoever's in the room with the red rope at the window will still be alive when the battle is over, which should sound familiar. This is another item in our establishing Joshua's authority, as there are clear and building echoes of Moses' story in Joshua's. They're all pretty much on a lesser scale for reasons we already mentioned in terms of Moses' unique place. But again, Joshua's got a singular mission too. So when something red outside the window keeps the peeps inside alive and safe, that should trigger a memory of the red lamb's blood on the slaves' door frames back in Egypt, whose lives were spared that fateful night of firstborn death. If Rahab hasn't heard that detail of the story yet, you know she already knows how it ends, and now she's caught up in the same epic herself. Well, the two spies slip home safely from the hills, just like Rahab said they would, and they give Joshua a report at the finish of Joshua 2, a report even more positive than he could have hoped for. Yahweh has totally handed the whole spread to us. Even better, everybody up there melts with fear at the thought of us. Pretty much the exact opposite of last time, right? 
Forty years ago, it was the Israelite spies who were melting with fear because of the land's inhabitants. So it looks like a few decades in the wilderness have done the trick, and we are ready to rock and roll. But before we can get to that battle whose song some of you have already been humming for quite some time, there's another one of those see-how-much-Joshua-is-like-Moses moments to look at. You can read it all for yourself in Joshua 3 and 4, but here's a summary with my usual commentary. Moses led my people out of slavery and into freedom by miraculously producing dry land through the midst of a great body of water, also known as the sea. Crossing the water in this way marked a seismic shift in their identity and way of living. They were slaves before. Now they're free. They were hanging on a prayer to me before. Now they've got my whole law to anchor them you get the picture. Passing through water, even while staying dry, marks a cleansing from the past and the promise of a new future. So now, in chapter Joshua, my children are also going to experience a similar shift in identity and way of life as they cross the Jordan River into the promised land. They're going from homeless to domiciled, from a people without a country to a place they belong. You already know how much I love drama, so I can't miss an opportunity for symbolism here at the Jordan in order that this younger generation can have an identity-change-marking experience like their folks. They walk through a miraculously dried riverbed. The waters have receded in unnatural manner, but not in response to the raising of a staff this time, not even by Joshua. Remember, we're dialing down the single human leader motif in order to emphasize the fact that, well, I am the one in charge. Moses was never king of Israel. I am. And where is my presence among my people now located? the Ark of the Covenant. So what makes the Jordan dry up so my children can cross into their next destiny on dry land? My Ark! Beautiful! Now, it's not like I'm going to be parting waters of different sorts on a regular basis. So these two big moments, uh, the dry ground traverse of both the Red Sea and the Jordan River, are going to need to be deeply lodged in the people's memory. As to the latter, Joshua has the strongest fellow in each tribe pick up the biggest rock he can carry from the Jordan riverbed while my ark is holding the waters back, and they make a fancy pile of them on the west side of the river. Remember, they've just crossed from east to west here to mark the occasion. And just in case there ever happens to be the odd snorkeling enthusiast out in the center of the Jordan, Joshua makes a pile of twelve stones himself at the dead center in the riverbed while the water's still being held back, making his own contribution to the historic moment. Once he's satisfied with his project, the Levites shouldering the ark on poles, remember, not ever actually touching the ark itself because it is holy because I am holy, 
those fellows make their way up the western shore, and the waters crash back down into the riverbed. As we learn from Rahab, this kind of thing doesn't occur in a vacuum. She testified to Joshua's spies that word spread far and wide about Israel's Egyptian exit through the dry sea. And right now, it just so happens that the Amorite and Canaanite kings up here in Rahab's neck of the woods here tell of my instant handiwork with the Jordan River. The people whose God whooped Egypt and brought his people out in miraculous fashion has just arrived with those same people on their side of the Jordan River, and you can read in the owner's manual how they feel about that. Their hearts melt with fear. We're starting Joshua 5 now. Their spirits go flat. They know they're no match for anyone for whom legendary Egypt is no match, and the dry Jordan River crossing has them shaking in their boots. Your military experts may call this a form of psychological warfare. I just call it poignant symbolism, being artistic like that and all. And speaking of being lodged in my people's memory... They've crossed over the Jordan River just in time to remember in ritual their deliverance from Egypt by my mighty hand. Poised to step into their new chapter, they stop moving for a moment to pause and celebrate their first Passover in the Promised Land, rehearsing and reliving the entire story from their slavery all the way through to their miraculous seabed saunter. Perfect timing, wouldn't you say? To recall right at this very moment my faithful rescue of my children, liberating them to become a nation of their own, just as they are about to claim my promises of providing that nation a land. Savor the poignant moment as they eat their first Passover meal, albeit a simple one, gleaned from the produce of their new land. Not coincidentally, as this meal marks both the end of their wandering in the wilderness as well as their claim of my land promises, it also marks the end of the miraculous morning manna which I have been providing daily throughout these forty years, but didn't find the need to mention again until now. They will no longer need for me to put food in their hands. They'll be able to grow and gather their own from now on. Of course, it'll still be for me. I'm the one who made the everything they're going to harvest and eat. We'll just be partners in the process again. I'm sure they're tired of the same old meals day in, day out. Can you imagine? Now, your habitat would get all psychological about their self-esteem increasing as a result of their working for their sustenance instead of just being handed their breakfast but I'm just going to say things are going to be more balanced in the dinner department from now on. Balanced at least in terms of their taking their part in growing it. It's up to them to balance their diet and eat their vegetables. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 
15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friends, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.